Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm a scientist who cares about communication and wants you to understand how genomics and how biotechnology can be used to enhance our understanding of agriculture, medicine, and in this case, the world around us. And today we're going to talk about a new paper that just came out in PNAS about penguins. So it's uh, the podcast about uh, agriculture and medicine, but also we frequently talk about conservation and ecology and the ways in which biotechnology and genomics are used to understand that. So today we're going to talk about the natural history of penguins and some new understandings that are breaking some of the old controversies as to their origins and their radiation. And today we're going to speak with Dr. Juliana Viana. She's in the Department of Ecosystems and Environment at the Faculty of Agronomia, and I started to do it in Spanish, of Agronomy and Forestry at the Catholic University of Chile, and that's in Santiago. And so welcome to the podcast, Juliana. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, it's really uh, it was it was really great to see the paper and very good to see the attention it's getting. But first, let's talk about this idea of an Antarctic genomics team. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you do and that the team does to understand the biology of Antarctica? Yes. So uh, I work with population genetics of vertebrates, and I have been working with penguins genetics uh, for several several years already. And we have interesting finding about the number of species, uh, how the populations uh, uh, has gene flow between them. And we, I'm part also of a big project that is Genomic Antarctic Biodiversity that we, our group have studied from bacteria to marine invertebrates to fishes and seabirds and marine mammals. Well, aside from things like penguins, what are some of those other big questions in currently in studying life around the polar region? So the evolutionary questions are related to the, the diversification in Antarctica and how the Antarctic polar front have isolated the diversity there. And also the role of Antarctic circumpolar current connecting biodiversity around Antarctica but also has uh, different questions of the effects of historical climate change, glaciations over the diversity, as also how the species, uh, the populations are connected, the population genetic structure. But recently as well, uh, the main question has been the effects of climate change, since the poles has a strong effect over the biodiversity that we already can see. So we want to uh, understand how species are going to adapt to the climate change now. 
No, that's a really great question. And we'll come to that in a minute. But, you know, being that you're, you're from Chile and that makes sense that you would be very uh, close to the South Pole relative to other places. And uh, have you been able to visit the places and actually research and study the penguins in place? Yes. So I have been collecting samples of penguins for genetics for a long time. And I have been collecting the coast of Chile, the southern, very southern Chile, Cape Horn in Patagonia, which is really difficult to work. It's very windy and the climate change a lot and difficult to reach the islands. And also I have been to Antarctica several times. And, and I have been to other uh, parts of the world also as a tourist. And I could see the other species as well. I, I'm lucky I could see 11 of uh, species of penguins. 11, I see, I didn't know there were that many. I figured there were a couple. <laughs> But this is this is I've loved, but this is where we learn a lot from your article. The other thing about this is the range of penguins, and I always associate penguins with the South Pole. But what is really their range? So penguins are found in the southern hemisphere, and there is not much many species that are found in Antarctica around Antarctica. Only two you can you can find around the entire Antarctica. That is the emperor and the Adelie penguin. Several other species are found in the Antarctic Peninsula and Scotia Arc. And many species are sub-Antarctic. You can find like the hook hoppers, macaroni, and king penguins, and several are found in different continents. Uh, they are associated with cold water, so you can also find uh, the African penguin associated with Benguela current in Af South Africa. And you can find also penguins in the coast of Chile up to Peru with following the Humboldt current and also up to Galapagos. So you can is the the species that you can find in the lowest latitude. You see, that's amazing to me that, that they mm -hmm. travel this or that they've radiated this far north. I've mm -hmm. even seen pictures of penguins on volcanic islands. Do you know anything about those penguins and how they've adapted to that environment? Yeah, so there is um, several islands that emerged uh, kind of recent and there is some species that are also associated, a speciation associated with the emergence of these islands. But yes, there is some volcanic activity recent as well in some islands in Antarctica. Uh, for example, and uh, there was some colonies that disappeared with this activity and returned back to the same place. And But also historically, for example, in the Ross Sea, um, some species were able to survive in the past we, in this area that had volcanic activity and allowed like increase a bit temperature and the species survived there. So... Yeah. Well, that that's uh, but a lot of questions, and I was yeah. surprised to see this yeah. are co are controversial in penguins, and yeah. uh, it was really surprising because when you start to look at your article as a starting point and look backwards, you see that there are questions from fossils and from uh, molecular markers, things like this. But what were some of the main controversies that your work helped to solve? Yeah, there was three main uh, evolutionary questions. 
when was when was the uh, living penguins diversified? Uh, there was studies that uh, uh, found like 10 million years and other up to 40 million years. So there was a big controversy controversy in the date. And the other controversy was the um, the the relationship between penguins. So uh, one hypothesis, some studies, phylogenetic studies show that uh, Aptenodites, they are king and emperor, are sister taxa to Pygocelis. There are Gentoo, Adele, and Tistra penguins. And other studies show that Aptenodite was the first clade to diverge from the remaining species. And the other main uh, uh, debate was in the region, the geographical region of the penguins. So there was studies that showed that the region was in Antarctica of these living penguins. And some studies showed that was more in a broad area between New Zealand, Australia, and Antarctica Peninsula. So, and so we, we could solve all these three questions with uh, genomic data and also environmental data. And also we've had lots of debates about the number of species that we have been answering in, in, with population genetics studies as well. Well, you mentioned that you're using genomics tools to solve these problems, but over the years, people have used molecular biology and biotechnology in other ways, like molecular markers, to try to sort out penguin speciation and, and radiation. But uh, has that really helped or has that confused the situation? Yeah, the problem is that in the past, uh, most of studies use uh, small parts of small fragments of DNA or small portions of the genomes. And sometimes they also include DNA from fossil, which is very fragmented. And so this lacks information to solve some some a relationship between penguins and mainly this this fast diversification of uh, a, of actinodites from the remaining species that have was in only one million years of difference. So uh, with genome we have lots of diversity uh, that we can solve this completely this uh, relationship. And all different markers that we use from the genome show the same topology in this relationship. Okay, I understand. So it's that the, the penguin radiation and, and changes are so recent that the markers don't necessarily associate with the major drivers of the speciation. Is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Um, no, it's like that um, some spe species did diversify recently. But the main debate was with the first divergence between Aptenodites from the other uh, penguins. And the time in between the, the uh, crown penguin diversification and the separation of Aptenodites and then the reminding penguins, this time was uh, uh, between two, 22 million years and, and 21 million years. So it's uh, a recent like a, a short time period of uh, diversification in the past. I see now. Okay. So what, what, what are the main, what were the main competing hypotheses for the origins of the penguin? 
So um, the origin of the penguins, the main hypothesis was that some studies uh, um, show that the penguins originated in Antarctica and some had like a broad region between New Zealand, Australia and Antarctic Peninsula. And so there was not much a, a, a clear definition of what, when, where started the diversification of uh, the living penguins. And we could find that it was in the region of New Zealand and Australia. So we're starting to understand how the genomics tool would approach these questions. And we're speaking with Dr. Juliana Viana. She's an associate professor in the Department of Ecosystems and Environment at the Catholic University of Chile. And we'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin Falta, and I have something that I need you to do. We have an opportunity to solve a major ecological problem. The American chestnut used to dominate forests of the eastern U.S., comprising something like 25% of all standing timber. In 1904, a parasitic fungus entered the country and eventually all but destroyed this iconic tree species. There is a solution using genetic engineering. Dr. Bill Powell and his lab developed an American chestnut tree that expresses a gene that helps to combat the fungus. You might have heard about this back in Talking Biotech number 10. His goal is to start to restore the natural ecology of the Appalachians. And he submitted a petition of non-regulated status for the genetically engineered trees. Now what that means is, the trees can be planted outside without a lot of onerous regulation allowing this perfectly natural gene to be back in the ecosystem, defeating a fungus. But we need your help. Right now, there's a public comment period that regulators take very seriously. So please visit regulations.gov and search with the term chestnut. You'll find the petition. Read the instructions and write a thoughtful response on your feelings about restoring the ecology and the dominance of this keystone forest species. Dr. Powell's group has done the hard work, and we know the tree is resistant and we know it's safe. Now we need your help to ensure its deployment and another success of biotechnology. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Juliana Viana. She's an associate professor in the Department of Ecosystems and Environment and that's at the Catholic University of Chile in Santiago. And we were talking about penguins and the recent genomic studies that sought to unravel some old mysteries that I didn't even know about till I read the paper. So let's start to take a look at the, the paper itself. How were genomics tools used to examine the relationships among penguins? So we sequenced 22 genomes of 18 species of penguins, uh, you use 22 genomes because there was some species that was the controversy how, uh, if there was only two or only, only one, we wanted to solve that as well. And with the genome, we reconstruct the phylogenetic relationship between the species. And we use different parts of the genomes to, to do that. So to see if the different parts of the genome show the same topology in the phylogeny. And it was the uh, UCE 
exon, introns, and mitogenome. And we could uh, establish the relationship with the penguins. And we also use the fossil records to calibrate the times in the phylogeny. We calibrate with five fossils. And we also use modeling to see uh, using the recent distribution of the species to, to uh, model the past distribution of the species. And we also associate the genomic data with, um, with uh, environmental data, and we did a, a historical niche modeling. So, and we also use like the genomic data to estimate introgression, hybridization between the species. Uh, we, we evaluate which genes were under selection in the evolutionary uh, history of the penguins. And also uh, we estimate a past demographic history for each one of the species. So it was a lot more than just sequencing. You were actually bringing together many different data sets. And, and we're, when you look at the fossil record, you mentioned this before, um, how reliable is the dating in the fossil record since it's so recent? Yes, yeah, so we use uh, five fossils in different parts of the phylogeny. So we use uh, also one fossil in the node of the crown penguin. So we could... Uh, um, rely in the estimates of different fossils and it's very interesting if you look back also to the fossil records uh, of Sphenicidae, many species uh, has been already going extinct but if you look at our phylogeny and the diversification of fossils as well it's very correspond a very correspondent the radiation of the fossils with the radiation of the penguins now. And it was kind of timely because there was just maybe maybe a few weeks ago another paper in PNA or no actually in the proceedings of the Royal Society about um, a, a penguin fossil found in New Zealand that really suggested that it was the, the hot spot for penguin diversification at least seabird diversification. And so this, this it seems kind of like those two papers came out about the same time with similar similar findings. It, it, was that a coordinated thing or coincidence? Oh, yeah, it was a coincidence. I didn't know about the other paper. I just saw a few days ago. <laughs> and yes, and it, it's very nice that luckily <laughs> that we've both found like the same results <laughs> <laughs> and so it's nice that morphological and fossil data show the similar results to genomic data so no that, that's really great when things line up like that uh, what were some of what were some of the surprises that you found in your data set uh so um as I told you, we could like solve the relationship of uh, penguins. So Aptenodite is the first uh, branch gr group to, diverse, to diverge from the reminding penguins. They diversified 22 million years ago and uh, in New Zealand and Australia. And after that, the diversification was very coincident with decreases in temperature. So the middle Miocene, we could see a steep decrease in temperature 
and, and then the diversification of main groups and following the uh, intensification of Antarctic circumpolar current. And uh, so the penguins could colonize different areas like the Indian Ocean. And also we found a more recent diversification uh, with um, during Pliocene and Pleistocene. Uh, we found we could model also the historical uh, uh, temperature in the seawater that the, pe the penguins could live, and it was about nine degrees Celsius. And we found interesting results also uh, in genes under selection. Uh, so the evolution of and diversification of penguins were associated with selection in genes related to thermoregulation, uh, um, the, uh, osmoregulation, and diving capacity. And uh, we found also, a la we estimate introgression, hybridization, historical hybridization between species. And we could find a uh, high uh, signature of introgression for uh, Eudiptes penguins, the ones with the yellow feathers, and uh, up to 25%. And we found some hybridization also between Humboldt and Magellanic penguins. They, they overlap distribution, we found 11%. And we also could see that in the past, uh, the demographic history of penguins, they uh, had steep decrease in temperature, in, in population sizes uh, during the last glacial maximum. Well, how much did that glacial maximum play a role in pushing the species north? Uh, yeah, so this is uh, the last glacial maximum was much more recent, right? And uh, so uh, it was uh, about 20 million, uh, 20,000 years ago. And so uh, this impact the, already the populations of penguins like not they didn't have much role in the diversification of penguins but did impact the populations of each one of the species differently and we also have been studying that as with population genetic studies so now that's uh that's really interesting some of the things i learned about this so the, you know, the glaciers having very little to do with expanding the population because it's so recent but affecting all of the populations. So when the populations really originate in New Zealand, Australia, and uh, move through our Antarctica and around Antarctica, that's driven by ocean currents primarily. So we start with um, penguins that are originating in New Zealand and uh, Australia, very likely, and they're moving around south around the South Pole. Tell me the role of, of the currents that are there in, in the Arctic currents. Yes, yeah, so uh, around Antarctica, there is the uh, Antarctic Circumpolar Current that is a clockwise current. So the, this current starts uh, start to, to be formed uh, a long time ago, like th uh, 30 million years ago. But the, the complete opening of the, the deep sea of the Drake uh, in the intensification of the Antarctic Circumpolar Current occurred around 11 million years ago. So this allowed that the penguins could colonize several areas and uh, in, in the Indian Ocean, South America, 
after this completely opening and intensification of ACC. And your data show that the diversification and adaptation was really driven by changing climates and that the, the penguins do adapt very quickly to warming trends, but we've been seeing an extremely rapid warming trend in the last 100 years. Is there any evidence in the change of distribution of penguins during the recent times or is there any adaptation to it? Yeah, so uh, we can see already the impact of uh, the recent climate change over the species. Uh, so it's occurring too fast and some species can cannot respond very, uh, and cannot adapt to recent climate change. You can see, for example, in Antarctic Peninsula, uh, you can find Gentoo, Adeli, and Chinstrap penguins. Uh, and Adeli and Chinstrap penguins are decreasing in population size. And Gentoo, for example, it's increasing and expanding farther south. We have studied uh, Gentoo penguin as a populations in the Southern Ocean. And we know that this species uh, originating in the sub-Antarctic it's uh, it originating in Crosset and Mario, and then colonized Antarctica later, and uh, so it's a, a sub Antarctic more adaptive species. So it's doing well in Antarctica right now. But the other subspecies that we found for gentle penguin in Crosset and Mario is it's it has low population size and it's decreasing. So we know already that some uh, emperor penguin is being affected. Um, in Antarctic Peninsula, there was a colony of emperor that doesn't exist anymore. And some researchers claim that disappeared because of climate change. And also uh, in South America, for example, Humboldt in Galapagos has been impacted. The populations has high mortality associated to El Nino, southern oscillations. And, but now with climate change, El Nino is becoming more strong and more frequent. And so this is a big concern. So we are expecting increased mortality. And yeah, so there is several already impacts in different species and different species are responding differently. So right now we also working, we did like the niche modeling for the species to see the distribution and the environment data that has uh, a, around the each species distribution so we could model for the past and now we want to, to model these for the future and also use molecular genomic data to to to, uh, to see how each species is going to respond to climate change well your story gained so much interest on social media and that's where I learned about it <laughs> uh, I read about it on Twitter and yeah. it's because it's, it's interesting because people really love penguins and that, you know, that's how it works. But what have you learned as a scientist on Twitter and how you can use that tool to expand the visibility of your work? Yes, it's amazing too. I have to confess that I, I, I didn't use much <laughs> uh, before my students, PhD students and postdocs, they use all the time. And I could, I could sometimes, I, it's, uh, sev there is several uh, social medias already, like Facebook and Instagram. I could see paper from, from colleagues, but twi Twitter is much better too. 
And uh, so I decided to upload the paper. Uh, this was the first paper that I uploaded in Twitter. And yes, it took lots of attention and I'm really impressed. And so it's an amazing tool. And I already have seen several good papers in Twitter. So it's, I, I recommend definitely to use Twitter to, to see papers out there and to disseminate better the scientific results. Yeah, I had to ask you that question. I have so many faculty that I work with who say, you know, it's a useless tool. Who needs this? And I think it's a great way to share your science. And so if people want to follow your work on Twitter, what is your Twitter username? Uh, my username is uh, GU, underline A, underline Viana, V-I-A-N-N-A. Okay, and I'll put a link to it also on the website that follows with this episode. So, Dr. Viana, thank you very much for spending the time to talk to us and teach us a little bit more about the origins and radiation of penguins. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me for the interest in our research. And as always, thank you to the listeners for tuning into another episode of the Talking Biotech podcast. Share it with a friend. Uh, give us a review over on iTunes or anywhere else. Show us a little love on Patreon. Uh, any investment in the podcast goes to promote it further and to help us do better with our uh, production and with our distribution. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. 
C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.